My name is Erwin Ince, and I serve as one of the pastors in our Grace DC network of churches, and I have had the great privilege of being before you this, these past four Sundays with a short sermon series through the first two chapters of the book of Acts that we've been calling uh, the work of the Spirit through the church as we look through Ascension Sunday and Pentecost Sunday and these Sundays after Pentecost in the Christian calendar. And so this morning, we might even, as we turn our attention to this last message in this short series from Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 47, we might call this message uh, the work of the Spirit in the church. We've been talking about the work of the Spirit through the church, and this morning we get to see the work of the Spirit in the church. And so our sermon title this morning is, We Are Family. We Are Family. And here is the point of this message that I want to share with you this morning. It is this, that, that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, purposed to create a unified community that continually grows in its devotion to Jesus Christ its generosity towards others, and its witness to the world. That what the Holy Spirit purposed to do is to create a unified community that continually grows in its devotion to Jesus Christ, its generosity to others, and its faithful witness to the world. Look with me at Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47, hear God's word. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So, so those who received his word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Yes, indeed. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for your word. This word, again, that is alive, it's not dead. It's active and it's sharp and it pierces, Lord, to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judging the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And Lord God, we are all naked and exposed to you today, the one to whom we must all give account. And so would you use my weak and unworthy efforts in your word and do with them what you will by the preaching of your word. Meet us where we are. Give us what we need. Faith, correction, encouragement, building up, Lord God, that we would be people who live not for our own glory, but for the glory and praise of Jesus Christ. Amen, amen, and amen. Before I was a pastor, some of you know that I had this career as a systems engineer and a project engineering manager with Motorola, and it started back in 1995. And at that time, my wife Kim and I had only one child. And that summer of 1995, I got hired, my hiring manager, he took me out to lunch, and, uh, and he asked me what my goals were. He wanted to make this connection. He asked me what my, my goals were and what was important to me. And I told him that my family was probably the most important thing to me. And as far as my goals were concerned, I said that I wanted to become a corporate VP in the company. And you can see how that all turned out. But he asked me this question when I told him that. He said, do you think you can be a corporate vice president in this company and still have a quality family life? I said to him, yes, I do. And he said to me, I don't. He said, I look at the director level just right above me, and I see how much time they have to spend away from their families, how much they have to travel, and, and how much is required of them. I, I think it is impossible, he said, to have an upper-level management job in this company and have the type of family life that you're describing. I talk about bursting my bubble. Here I am, this uh, you know, this uh, 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 rosy-eyed 26-year-old, uh, fresh out of the gates, having my ideal job with my ideal company, with my visions of grandeur about how my life was going to play out, how my career was going to go, and my boss just sticks a pin right in it. it brings me down to reality. Well, you know, we can actually experience that same kind of bubble-bursting feeling when we read this text at the end of Acts chapter 2 and compare it with the reality that we see in the church. Luke describes the first days of this new covenant community. We hear him describe what can only be uh, understood as, a, as an ideal situation, perfect harmony within the church. People respond to Peter's preaching with repentance and faith. The church grows from 120 disciples we read about in Acts chapter 1 to 3,000 people added in verse 41 of chapter 2. And then everybody's getting along, supporting one another, loving God and loving their neighbors. They've got a good reputation with people outside of the church community. And the last word of our past 
message is that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. If you were a passerby in Jerusalem uh, on the days after that Pentecost, you would have heard these Christians singing, we are family. Uh, uh, Everybody can see we're together as we walk on by and we fly just like birds of a feather. I will tell no lie. Y'all know this song? All the people around us, they say, can they be that close? Just let me state for the record, we're giving love in a family dose. We are family. I got all my brothers and sisters with me. We are family. Get up, everybody, and sing. We look at the church today, and our bubble bursts. It's so often that that's not the song that comes to mind when you think of the church, whether you're on the inside or on the outside. You can even get nostalgic and and yearn to have been back in the church during those days, just like my ideal new job and new life were dashed when my boss told me it was impossible to have both at the same time. Our hope for the ideal that we seemingly read in this text can seem impossible possible when we see that the challenges and divisions that exist in the church. Notice this with me though, this, this new community that's being formed, life for this new community is not messy yet. You only actually have to go a few chapters later in Acts before that harmony is disrupted. Persecution comes. Ethnic uh, division comes. It, It won't be long before that verbal burst even in this book. But what are we to do with these verses? Are we to look at this harmonious group of Christians and say what we see is the prescription for the church today and if she doesn't look like this, she's not being faithful? Or are we to say that this is just an impossible ideal and we should have no expectation that the church can look like this? And my answer to both of those questions is no. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, there is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So those who follow Jesus Christ should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And this text helps us do that, not by giving us a manual, so to speak, for the church, but by unveiling and unrevealing revealing to us the identity of the church and giving us markers for its life as a new family created by the Spirit under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So stay with me because I'm going to be trying to go a little fast, not talk fast because I got six G's for us today. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Help us, Lord. You know how they say in the black church, you know, help him, Lord. That meant help that brother hurry up. <laughs> Six G's, guilt, grace, gravity, growth, generosity, and gladness. Guilt, grace, gravity, growth, generosity, and gladness. We looked at Peter's sermon last week, and Peter closes his sermon in verse 36 with the words, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
In his sermon, Peter was specific. He made sure they knew that he, who he was talking about. Jesus of Nazareth, he had told them, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. This Jesus, he had told them, you yourselves crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And those words were extremely significant. There was a point of contact between what the Bible had said and where the people stood in relation to that. They were, it says in verse number 37, cut to the heart. They experienced a sharp pain, the type of pain that comes when you're stabbed with a knife. In other words, they are not having a pleasant response to Peter's sermon. They're not shouting, hallelujah, bless the Lord, holy is his name. They have a deep and a painful emotional response that penetrates to the core of their very being. Nobody likes the feeling of guilt. Nobody likes the heavy, painful burden of knowing that you are condemned. Over the past 10 years as pastor of City of Hope Church in Columbia, Maryland, we every month over those 10 years, we did a worship service at our local uh, detention center through the jail ministry that, that was there. And I served as an associate chaplain for that, that ministry. And, 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 and every time regularly throughout the year, we would, we would interact with men and, and women who were incarcerated in that detention center. And they would, they would ask us to pray for them and they would ask us to pray for them because they had a court date coming up. And what they wanted to hear from the judge is leniency and mercy. They wanted to hear not guilty. Nobody wants guilt. Everybody wants grace. And that's the case for us when it comes to judges who sit on the bench and it's magnified exponentially when it comes to God who sits on the throne. But when it comes to God, you can't get to grace until you're confronted with your guilt. You can't get to the pleasure of God's peace without the pain of knowing your guilt. Listen, there's a reason. You follow the service, there's a reason in our service. We come to that point every week for the confession, confessing our need for grace. And in hearing God's response to our need for, for grace. If we consider the situation of these people who were listening to Peter's sermon gathered on that day of Pentecost, these were not people, listen, these weren't people who actually rejected the Bible. They were described by Luke earlier in the chapter as devout people from every nation under heaven, Jews and proselytes. These were people who already believed the scriptures to be the authoritative word of God. And so Peter's application of the scriptures, it carried weight with them. But here's the deal, whether you're familiar with the Bible or not. The point of connection between them uh, uh, who heard Peter's sermon in the first century and those of us here living in D.C. in 2018 is the need to recognize our guilt before God. 
The church could sing, we are family then, and the church can sing, we are family now. Why? Because we are blood relatives. We don't come from the same mama and daddy, but we all come by the blood. There's only one way in. We come by the blood of Jesus that has dealt a death blow to your guilt. Jesus is actually the take-it-or-leave-it proposition. The question is, have you gotten to the point of realizing that if you reject Jesus, you've rejected God and are carrying a burden of guilt that you can't actually carry? You can try to come up with whatever means that you want to to assuage your guilt, to cover it up, but brush it under the rug, but none of that works. Everybody... Everybody has to get to the point of realizing that we bear guilt before a righteous, holy, and just God that we are unable to remove and do away with, and therefore we need help. The only acceptable response to the unbearable weight of guilt that every person has, whether you acknowledge it or not, is to receive the offer of God's grace through repentance and faith in Jesus, who is both Lord and Christ, Peter says. Peter's response to their question is full of grace. It's full of grace. Did you notice that? See, Peter, Peter has experienced the forgiving love of God. He knows firsthand what it is to reject Jesus. He knows what it is like to deny Jesus. He could hear their question, what should we do, and recall in his mind what it felt like when Jesus was on trial and he denied three times that he knew the Lord just like Jesus said he would do. He knows what it's like to be cut to the heart. So Peter can say to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God calls to himself. Peter says, turn around, turn back. That's what it means to repent. I was going in this direction, but God interrupted my my flow and opened my eyes so that I could, could, could not only have my undeniable guilt exposed, but so that I could also be exposed to the forgiving grace of God in Jesus Christ and put my trust in him. Repentance always includes faith. Repentance and trust go together. When Jesus first came on the scene to begin his ministry, what did he say in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15? He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What happens in repentance? Your mind starts to change. The grace of God starts to change your mind. You start to think you start to act uh, in harmony with what Jesus says in his word. I like what, what uh, uh, N.T. Wright says in his commentary and on this passage. He says, this is, this is what Peter's message is. Join this movement. Allow the death and resurrection of Jesus to become the badge that you wear, the sign of your identity with you and your children standing in the new life of the baptized community, the life which has 
has the stamp of Jesus upon it, the life which is defined in terms of turning away from the curse you were on, course you were on and embracing the Jesus way instead. Amen. That's what happens. Repentance and faith, the call, the call to, to repentance is plural. You all repent, Jesus, uh, Peter says in, uh, in, in the Greek text, but the command to be baptized is for each one to participate individually. Be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. As we saw and heard this morning, that baptism is a sign that somebody belongs to the company of God's people. A, a sign and seal, as Pastor Joel reminded us of the covenant of God's grace, a, a person being joined in and grafted into Jesus Christ of belonging to him. And while I do it in faith, baptism is not a sign of my faith. It is a sign of the grace of God. Everything that Peter says in his response to their question is about the grace of God. What they would receive through Repentance and faith, and what we receive through repentance and faith are the three gifts of forgiveness of sins, right? What we, what we don't deserve, can't buy, or even bargain for. And look, the free gift, Peter says, of the Holy Spirit. Look, the gift is the Holy Spirit. And this promise that Peter's talking about, this promise, he says, is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God calls to himself. In other words, God places no limitations on his gift. We can talk about the work of the Spirit through the church because God has not placed a limit on his gift. Peter's audience didn't get it yet. Look, Peter's audience wasn't envisioning you and I in this room 2,000 years later. They were still going to be ethnocentric for a while. They're in Jerusalem, and all of them are Jewish by birth or by conversion. But Peter states in the strongest terms that this promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit is going to expand far beyond the confines of, of Jewish ethnicity and national boundaries. The promised gift, Peter says, is for everybody. Everybody God calls to himself. Every Christian receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because everybody needs to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. You are not a wind-up toy with a knob on your, on your back uh, where, where the Holy Spirit comes and, and winds you up and just lets you go and live your life following Jesus. So you can do it on your own. The type of living that God cares about is living as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And what that means is an ongoing growth, an ongoing learning to obey all things that Jesus commands out of love and gratitude and devotion to him. It means an ongoing directing of our lives according to his word and for his honor and his glory. That is the family identity. And listen, you need power to do that. You ain't got the juice. 
You don't have the juice to do that if you were left on your own. We'd be just like them wind-up toys. You know, as soon as that thing starts to crank and slow down, you start to, the toy starts to slow down as well. That's not how God works. God works. His, his grace is such that he provides what we need to live the life that he calls us to live. And you'd think, you'd think that after this grace, Peter, once Peter told them about uh, their, what to do about their guilt and the promise of God's grace, that he'd be done. But he goes from grace to, to gravity. Luke says in verse 40 that with many other words, he bore witness. Uh, uh, that, that sense of urging, a solemn warning. Uh, I would say, he says in verse 40, with many other words, he seriously urged them and exhorted them by saying, be saved from this crooked generation. This generation, he's saying, is crooked, not simply because they were living in a society that was immoral or full of unethical people. It was crooked because they had rejected Jesus. They're part of the generation, Peter. Y'all are part of the generation, Peter said, that literally crucified Jesus. And Peter continues to impress upon them the gravity of what they needed to do. Stop being an unbeliever, he said. Stop being an unbeliever. Be saved. Be rescued. And there was a great response, right? We read it in the text. Incredible numbers beyond our imagination. Like it's so many. But Luke just says about 3,000. Right. How many people were there? We don't know. But Luke says that those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Peter was a powerful preacher. He impressed upon them the gravity and urgency of their need to be rescued by God. Luke says those who received his word were baptized. What's crazy is that as powerful as Peter's sermon was, there were those who didn't receive his word. There were those who didn't get the gravity of what Peter was saying. Now, I know it's rough for me to point that out, right, when the text said like 3,000 people were added to the to the church, but listen, I'm doing it to point out that even when the apostles were preaching, not everybody responded with faith. The message of the cross and the gravity of our condition is foolishness unless God opens our ears to hear his call, opens our eyes to see the crucified Jesus risen and ascended on us and receive his grace. That's what happens for the 3,000 who received Peter's word. They got the gravity of their situation, and then we find that they're growing not just in number but in devotion, not simply in width but in, but in depth. The, the word for devoted in verse number 42 has a sense of, of persisting in something, holding steadfastly to something, staying close to something. Luke is particular about the things that they persisted in, devoted themselves to each of these four things has a has a the in front of it the apostles teaching the the fellowship the breaking of of bread the the prayers what they were concerned uh, to do is to continue learning more and more about Jesus 
They were hungry for Jesus, so they persisted in sitting at the apostles' feet. See, here's the deal. That's exactly what the Holy Spirit does. He creates in us that same kind of hunger. And can I say this to you? Like you never arrive. You never get to the point where you're not hungry for more and more of Jesus. You never get to the point where you can say, you know, I learned all that there is to learn about, about Jesus and about God's truth and how it applies to, to, to life uh, uh, for his people. The, the family identity is a community who is always hungry for Jesus. We'll always be growing in that way. We don't have the 12 apostles anymore, but we still have their teaching. And this life of worship for the new community was sitting at the apostles' feet and learning. But look, it's also described as, as devotion to the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the, and the prayers. And, and all four of these are a particular description of what it took place when they were gathered together for worship. They were devoted to the fellowship. They were, uh, there was an enthusiasm for the, for the common bond that they shared in, in worship. Their, their attitude wasn't, listen, let me just get my praise on this week. What? I said I was going to go fast, right? But I got to see, like, why, do we, why do we actually pass the peace in the worship service? Why do we actually get up and do that? Why do we actually engage one another and say the peace of Christ to you? Why? Because of a commitment to the fellowship in the worship of God. There was a real commitment, a real desire to be continually coming together for worship. They looked forward to being together in worship. They were devoted to celebrating the Lord's Supper. The breaking of bread is literally in the Greek text, the breaking of the bread. This was a particular bread set aside for their time of worship. I will wait till later to talk about that. They were devoted to the bread and the prayers. So the public worship for this new community included apostolic preaching and teaching fellowship of believers celebrating the Lord's Supper and common prayers. The first and foremost thing that the Holy Spirit purposed to grow was a worshiping community. And guess what? That's what he's still doing. And the practical outworking of this devotion to worship was an overflow of love and sacrificial generosity. Luke so wants to impress this devotion upon us that he repeats himself down in verse 46. He says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with, with gladness and generous hearts. And what is translated in verse 46 as attending is the exact word that, uh, and form of, of the word that is translated as devoted in verse number 42. So in other words, they're persevering in the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and the breaking of the bread and prayers in the context of gathered worship, it spills out into a life of persevering together, being devoted together in worship and eating together in each other's homes, sharing food with gladness and singleness of heart. So what we see here 
is an unmatched generosity driven by a rich devotion to God, a love for God, and a love for one another. In between the devotion verses, here's how Luke describes it. All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So much so that if there was a need, right, everybody's like, I want to be a part of helping to meet that need, even if it costs me my property and my possessions. I will gladly give them up that my brothers and sisters would not be destitute or, or go without. It wasn't a, listen, it wasn't what Peter's describing and what Luke is describing, rather, is not a church hierarchy program imposed from the apostles on high. No, that's like akin to oppression. This, what we are reading, is the expression of love that comes from within, and it was an ongoing thing as needs arose. Let me back up and put my geek hat on for just a second. I was with some other African-American pastors this week, and we were confessing that we were all blurreds, B-L-E-R-D, black nerds. We were confessing this is who we are. So, look, all of the main verbs in verses 42 to 47 are in the same tense in the Greek text, and what that means is Luke is getting at something by using this tense, and what he is describing is, is intentionally describing for us an ongoing practice of the community. It didn't just start on that day of Pentecost, but it, it continued to, to go, and these are the things that they just started to do and continue to do as time went along. That's the, that's the emphasis, right? This was an ongoing practice among the church, right? Day by day, they said they broke bread from house to house. People still owned houses, and presumably they had stuff in their houses. And this is an outworking of what Jesus says is the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with everything, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The presence of the Spirit in the church brought forth an abundance of generosity. Look, you got a question, right? In other words, Luke is like, listen, these people were confessing that God is over my bank account too. That God is over everything that I've got, my, my home and my cars, and they ain't had no cars, but, and they have no chariots neither, but you get the point. That God owns it all. That, that, and it was, it was something that was moved by the Spirit in the hearts of the people. It's really interesting. Luke doesn't say anything about Peter teaching about tithing and giving. See, when the Spirit comes, the response of the people is a sense of, of generosity, being grateful to God for his, for his outflowing generosity to them, to them that flows out in generosity toward one another. As one commentator said, the aim of the early Christians was to abolish poverty so that needy persons as a class of people were no longer among them. Imagine that. 
even though the practice of voluntarily selling goods and property to create a continual pot of funds wasn't the practice that the later church kept up in and codified as a rule, what continues is the call for an abundance of generosity to mark the people of God. I tell you this, you see how these things flow? Being devoted to worship, to the teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers, knowing one another, doing life together, doing that, doing that leads to, 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 to needs being identified in the community as they arise and being met. And the Lord will continue to give his people opportunity to provide a wealth of generosity to one another. Whatever the need is, there was no shame in their game. The folks who had need didn't try to act and fake it like everything was all right. Like, I don't need nothing. I'm doing all right. How you doing this morning? You know, I'm blessed. No, you broke down and can't pay your bills. The Spirit creates a community where there's no faking it to make it and creates this generosity. And what's so healthy about this church is that with all their devotion to worship, all their generosity towards one another, and their fellowship with one another, they're not actually an ingrown church. They're not a church that is only focused on and cares about themselves. They're still a church that is bearing and sharing the truth and love of Jesus Christ with those around them. How do we know that they're a witnessing church? Because Luke says in the second part of verse 47 that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And you know what I think? Listen, this is, I'm speculating here, and it's dangerous to speculate, but I don't think it's a far reach. These folks seem to have a contagious gladness of heart. There was something that was obviously different about them. Their sharing amongst each other is described as being, being one, uh, uh, being done rather, this sharing with glad and generous hearts. There was a joy that was emanating from this community. It wasn't just in this, their homes. This gladness and this joy was evident in their public praises in the temple. The temple was the primary place in Jerusalem where crowds would be found so they didn't just stay in their homes, but they were out among the people so that their gladness of heart could be seen. God's praises was constantly on their lips. The temple is gone. The temple is gone. We're not living in Jerusalem in the first century. But what continues with the presence of the Spirit is a gladness of heart that the Holy Spirit gives a joy that comes from the powerful presence of the Spirit. It's a joy that he makes evident. Not a joy, right? Not a joy that means I don't have any problems. A joy that marks us out to say, listen, the Christian life is different. It stands out. They're living a life of praise and are praised by all the people, it said. When Luke says they had favor with all the people, that's the people who are outside of this Christian community. Now, right, I said that, I started out saying this was the ideal, right? Persecution is coming in chapter 4. This favor with all the people is only going to last a minute. But the point 
is that it wasn't a show. Their gladness was real. Their joy was real, so their witness was real. What then, when this new community opened their mouths to say that God cares, all people had to do was take a look at how they cared for one another with such generosity. What we experience here today in 2018 might fall short of this picture of the ideal Christian community. However, listen people, the Spirit has come. The Holy Spirit has come and he's not going away. <laughs> he has indeed been given to us here in this church. So what we know to be true is that in Jesus Christ, we ourselves are guaranteed to continue growing in our devotion to him, our generosity towards others, and our glad witness to the world. In other words, what we know is that we are family. Amen. I've got to stop there. <laughs> Amen, Brother Kenny. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, the, um, the weight of your word, the reality of our guilt, the reception and the acknowledgement of our need for grace, uh, the blessing to know that your spirit is present, encouraging us to be devoted to you and to your word, to, to the breaking of bread, to the prayers, to, to sharing lives together. Father, I pray that this word would not fall upon deaf ears and that you would be continuing to work in us, Lord God, as a family that is faithful, faithful to bearing witness to the presence and power of your spirit by the way we love one another by the way that generosity overflows out into even beyond the walls of this church, beyond the lives of these people, beyond our lives, into those who need to know that there is indeed a God who can save and rescue. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.